Find your seat and a Bible, please. And open with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. Today's a, today's a good day. The last two weeks, the, I wanna, the, the last two weeks, uh, while it's true that every single chapter, including the first three, are very rich, beautiful, loaded with important truth for our everyday lives, I, I do think the first three chapters of the series so far have been warm-ups for what we're starting the next uh, rest of the series here because today it starts to get a little weird. The book of Job, the book of Job is uh, one of the most fascinating books to me in the Old Testament. Um, they're all good. That's not, I'm not saying it's like the best book. I'm just saying it's, it's fascinating because it was probably the first uh, the first scripture that Israel was given, the first written down script that Israel was given. This is not a sermon on Job, but just hang with me for just a second. With, with Job, Job was written to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So the first scripture mankind ever received from God essentially answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, Job seems to be a true story, even though it kind of has the format of being written once upon a time. Um, it seems to be a true story. But what, I think what makes it so interesting, Job, is that it's written from a third-person omniscient perspective. Do you know what I mean? Like the author of Job, the narrator of Job, knows everything that's happening uh, in the entire story. He sees the, he sees the big, full picture. In fact, it starts off with the picture having the heavenly perspective of, of what's going on in the spiritual realm and what's going on in Job's life. So the author of Job has this omniscient perspective the narrator of the story knows what's going on in the physical and the spiritual realm. And the lessons we learn from Job, we learn because we get both perspectives. In Job, we, we understand how Job ought to be operating because we see the spiritual reality behind what's going on. Interestingly, Job does not know what's going on in the spiritual realm behind all of his suffering. If you're not familiar with the book, it's the story of a righteous man who undergoes a, a whole horrific series of events, and he suffers immensely, and he spends the entire 42 chapters of the book, well, most of the 42 chapters of the book, asking God, why is this happening to me? And he does not know what's going on in the spiritual realm, but we do. We get to see behind the curtain. And here's the thing. God's people throughout the ages have gotten to see that perspective when they read Job. They get to understand what Job should have understood and eventually did by the end of the book, finally understand when God finally did show up and let, let Job know what's been going on this whole time. But we get to see that through the entire book. Because here's the thing. That heavenly perspective, that view into the spiritual realm is needed in order to satisfactorily answer the question of why does a good, all-powerful, omniscient, caring God allow evil to exist on the planet? You need a look into the heavenly realms to see the big picture, the eternal picture, in order to satisfactorily answer that question. And the reason I'm going on and on and on about Job is because that's part of the reason we have revelation. Today, we get to read and hear about how John was called up into the throne room of heaven. He had a vision. He was called, caught up in the spirit, it says. He had a spiritual vision. He gets to see behind the curtain, so to speak, the, the, into the spiritual realm, into the big picture. So in addition to the things that we can see and hear and touch and taste in our life experience all around us, Revelation helps us peek behind or into the heavenly realm, and see what's going on behind the scenes. 
Or maybe in a sense, uh, not behind the scenes, but what's really going on. Revelation clues us into what's really going on in our life around us. That's why it's so important we have this book, because that's the only way we can answer the question about suffering and hardship in this life, is if we have this peek into the spiritual heavenly realms to know the big picture of what's going on. And the things that John sees and hears when he's called up into the throne room, he writes down for us so that we can have an eternal perspective in our spiritual war against sin, against our flesh, and against the devil. So today's passage, chapters 4 and 5, are a powerful start to that perspective, which then we get for the rest of the book. The rest of the book we spend in these spiritual heavenly visions. And what we're going to see, actually, as we go through the book, we're going to see that the visions in Revelation, the visions in Revelation cycle through the history of mankind from Christ's resurrection and ascension all the way to his second coming. There's three cycles of that story being told over and over. And we'll try to keep you apprised week by week where we are in the story. But right now, we're sort of at the prologue to this. We're getting set up for going through the cycles of history. And I want to try something a little different in my approach to this. It's going to require that you have a Bible in front of you. Okay, it's going to require that you're looking along with me because I'm not going to, I'm going to end by reading the, the text word for word. But as we're going, I'm going to say, hey, take a look and scan through in just a second. And take a second and scan through and you'll see these kinds of images. So I want you to be looking at the book with me. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend about half the sermon doing some Bible study and then I'm going to preach. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you know, there's a di- they, they talk about a difference between teaching and preaching. And some sermons are more teaching than preaching. Some sermons are more preaching than teaching. Today I'm going to try a little bit of both. Okay. So look, it starts at chapter 4, verse 1, and it starts off with this, this interesting uh, interlude. You'll see it starts off, after this I looked, and I just wanted to say that the after this, we're going to see that on repeat throughout Revelation. After this I looked and saw, and that does not necessarily mean, I wanna, this is going to throw some of you off a little bit, that does not necessarily mean that he's indicating a chronological order of events. When John writes his books... Uh, He doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. Even in the Gospel of John, we see that the order of events in the Gospel of John are slightly different from the other Gospel writers. John is not as much concerned as we are about the precise chronological events as he is painting a correct picture about Christ's work and his character and his person. So when John writes, it may be that they're in chronological order, But it's not necessarily that they are. The chronology is not important. When it says, after this, I looked and I saw what he's really, what we can understand clearly is he's saying, this is the next thing I saw. Okay. So I wanted to start with that. Um, And then there's a little bit of debate at the the, the end of the verse uh, when it says, I will show you what must take place after this, Uh, whether that's referring to the future or not. There's some debate about that. There are those that uh, think that um, that John right here is introducing these futuristic visions that um, either uh, they're taking it place at some point in the far future for John, and some of those people believe that, and it's in the near future for us. Um, but what, what must uh, take place after this? Some translations say what must soon take place. So that's a little tricky as well. But either way, um, I, I do think it's just important what we can see clearly is that uh, uh, whether it's simply saying after this, as in after Christ's resurrection and ascension, 
uh, which is the position I hold, or if it's saying after this, as in like some point far in the future, that doesn't change the core message a whole lot, okay? Um, there's some, but there is some debate. The next thing we're going to see as we get down into verses 2 and 3, 5 and 6, is we, this is where it starts to get weird. I was in the Spirit, there was a throne in heaven, someone was seated on it, and then it talks about the appearance of jasper and carnelian and a rainbow and some emeralds and lightning and thunder and the sea of glass. What's going on here in this throne room scene? If you've read Revelation, I imagine that you've started to kind of get into, wow, what's going on here? And then it's going to get into the, these elders and these living creatures. But what's going on with this throne? Let's just focus on just this throne description for just a second. And here's a question when you're studying Revelation that I want you to be able to ask of the text. If you're reading Revelation for yourself, you want to be able to ask, where have I seen this before? Where have I seen something like this before? So when you're, when you're reading about all this intense imagery... You want to ask yourself, have I seen something like this before? And there's, there's a couple ways of answering that question. I actually talked about this two weeks ago. You're either going to find that it is sort of a copy and paste, very obvious uh, description of something else we read very similar to it in the Old Testament. And you'll be able to go and say, oh, I see. Jasper and Carnelian show up here too. Flashes of lightning and thunder show up here too. Rainbows show up here too. And especially when you have them all bundled together, then you can kind of know we're sort of looking at the same thing. You're either going to see that. You're going to see uh, phraseology that you're going to see from the other New Testament writings. Um, or the details are, where have I seen this before? Maybe we haven't seen it before, but as, as happens here in a minute with seven torches, it's going to tell us exactly what the image is. So in the case of the seven torches, it's the seven spirits of God. We'll get to that in a second. So it's either going to tell us exactly what it is. It's going to be so obvious in detail that it's, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he, we saw that same thing in Ezekiel, for example. And that's where, actually where we're going in just a second. Or uh, we won't have seen it before. We won't have seen it before. And if you haven't seen it before, then don't worry about it too much. There's one other subcategory um, that is, is something like the entire culture at the time would have known what he was talking about. And that's where it gets a little tricky because sometimes I read uh, theologians and I read commentators and they say, well, you know, if, if you knew this, this secret thing that I know, you would know that everybody at the time was thinking uh, that this image was related to this other concept. And that unlocks this passage for us. And whenever I see a commentator do that, all of my shields go way up. Um, I'm going to need some first or second century writing that shows me that. But in some cases... In some cases, you do find that first and second century writing where everybody, for example, referred to the city of Rome as the city that sat on the seven hills. Okay? So sometimes what you will see is a widely, publicly verifiable reference to something that the culture would have known at the time that we still know today. That we still know today. So for example, uh, here's another illustration of that. An illustration would be, uh, what city am I talking about if I'm talking about the Big Apple? New York, right. What city am I talking about if I talk about Sin City? Vegas, Vegas right? So you got, like, that's, like, I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who are, like, new to America. That's, that, um, that's all right. Don't, don't worry about that. You'll learn, unfortunately. <laughs> You'll learn <laughs> those things. Um, it's that kind of thing that's going on. Uh, that we have a wide cultural acceptance that what they're talking about, the city on the seven hills, that was Rome. We know what's going on there. If it's a guess and if it's speculation, just go, well, that's an interesting idea. 
And I want to I I give you an illustration that looks like this. Um, in my office, in my office, I have a print of a painting. It's not a painting, it's a, like a printer print of one of my favorite paintings. This is a painting by a man named Rembrandt, a very famous European painter from the 1600s. Uh, this particular painting is called Two Old Men Disputing. Uh, that's not relevant. <laughs> Rembrandt was famous for painting only the details that mattered. So when, when Rembrandt, uh, when, this, when this painting, uh, this Rembrandt painting, you look at it, you're kind of, what's going on in this painting? Well, I see that guy's face. There's something about that face. Uh, uh, he's old. <laughs> he's got a long beard, long beard like, like a wizard. You know, he's kind of a smart dude. And you can see there's, vaguely, you can sort of see there's a pile of books on his, that, that sort of looks like a desk, I guess. So there's giving the impression that there's like, he's sitting at his desk at his study. You don't really know what's going on in the background. So don't spend a lot of time on the background. You don't actually really know what's going on in the foreground either. It's some blobby shapes of stuff. Uh, is that a giant stake? Uh, over there, is it a rock? Uh, we don't really know. Probably it's a manuscript. Who knows? Um, and, the, and even this guy in the foreground, you can tell there's a guy there, but you can't tell much else about him. But what can you see? You can see the man who's in focus pointing at the book, right? Pointing at the book. And in fact, if, uh, if this painting, if we were looking at the real painting, there's actually some script in that book that he went to paint. He went to paint that detail of the script in the book. And the meaning of this painting is something like, stick to the text, son which is why it hangs in my office when I'm preparing for sermons. What's clear in this painting? I think that is a good thing for us to keep in mind when we're looking at Revelation. What's clear here? And when we're looking at, when we are looking at the throne room and we see Jasper and Carnelian and emeralds and, and rainbows and things like that, there's some debate about this. What are these things describing? Some people see in the emeralds, in the, or the, what is it, the, um, the, so the carnelian and the jasper, those things are mentioned in the priestly garments. So they start to make this tie to this, the, the priestly garments, like the breastplate that the priests wore. So we see like the high priest, we see, we see an image of a high priest in the temple with all the lamps and stuff. Maybe, maybe, but where do we see it clearly? And the answer is in Ezekiel 1, verses 26 and 28. I'll put it up here. Something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli, I'll get to that in a second, was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. And from what, uh, from what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber, and what looked like fire enclosing all around it from what seemed to be his waist down. I also saw what looked to be a fire. There was brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day. And it, then it defines, what are we seeing? This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. So what are we looking at in Revelation chapter 4? We are looking at the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And then the prophecies start. I heard a voice speaking. John is saying, I'm in the same situation that the prophet Ezekiel was in, standing before the likeness of the Lord's glory. And John fell face down just like Ezekiel did. And the voice started speaking to him just like it started speaking <laughs> To Ezekiel. And then the lapis lazuli, the reason I, I highlighted that is because any good Minecrafter knows that what color is lapis lazuli? Blue. blue. Thank you. It's blue. Right? It's blue. <laughs> I was hoping that would happen. It's blue. 
So what you see in Ezekiel is you see this expanse and it's blue, and the word expanse can mean firmament. You see the sea above them and it's blue. And when we're in the throne room, the expanse that's blue is at his feet. It's sort of like coming down to earth to show up, going back up into the heavenly throne room. Kind of a cool image. One other image before the throne that is important. Verse 4, seven fiery torches. Seven fiery torches. And this tells us exactly what this is. This is the seven spirits of God, which is a phrase that's taken from Isaiah. The seven aspects of the spirit of the Lord, meaning this is an image of the Holy Spirit. So we have the throne and the one seated on it. And what's happening around the throne is the Holy Spirit is also present. The 24 elders, verse 4 again. I want to tell you, I'm disappointingly, we don't know who these people are. We don't know. Um, we don't find them in the Old Testament. We don't have a very clear, publicly attested, uh, extra biblical reference. In fact, um, looking this up, there are six categories of guesses about who this might be. And when I say categories of guesses, I mean each category has its own sub-guesses. So there's dozens of ideas about who these 24 elders might be specifically, who they might be specifically. The most popular, by the way, and the most plausible, seems to me, is that these represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, something like the guardian angels over the 12, the 12 uh, fathers of Israel and, the, and the, 12, uh, the, the fruit of the 12 apostles in the church, signifying the elect people of God. Maybe, maybe, that's cool, I like it. We don't know, and we don't need to know, because what's clear What's clear and going on here? The clear message about the 24 elders, the clear message about the 24 elders is that they have golden crowns on and they are also seated on thrones around the throne. And we'll see in a minute that they bow to the one seated on the throne and they put their crowns down. What is the message? That the one seated on the throne is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the clear message. Then we get to these very, very strange four living creatures. So I want to ask the question again, where have we seen this before? Where have we seen these before? Well, we get to see them because the four living creatures are combined images from the four living creatures from Ezekiel 1. The, the imagery from Ezekiel 10, they show back up. With one difference, Matt, but Matt, those creatures had four wings. These have six wings. Aha, well, so did the seraphim in Isaiah 6. This is a combined image of beings that surround God when we see him in his glory. There's a lot of, uh, no specific, so I've also read like, okay, well, one had the face of an ox, one had the face of an eagle, one had the face of a lion, one had the face of a man. What does that signify? And by the way, there's a lot of theories about that. Two, the most popular and one that seems pretty plausible to me. It, um, but I'm not, uh, this is not the point I'll tell you in a second. This is not what we're supposed to be doing, but I'll do it anyway for just a second. Is that you have, uh, you have, you have the, well, the wild beasts represented by the lion. You have the livestock represented by the ox. You have the birds of the air represented by the eagle. And you have mankind represented by the face of the man. So all the living creatures on the earth are represented here. Maybe. That's cool. Good idea. That's cool. I mean, because what the message would be if that were true is something like all creation is worshiping. And I can go there because what are they actually doing that is clear? What are the elders and the creatures doing? They are worshiping. They are worshiping. That's what's clear. The elders and the living creatures are worshiping. And that leads me to my next point. What is the focus of this scene? 
The focus of this scene. Don't get distracted by all the little details. The focus of the scene is not the elders and the creatures. The focus of the scene is the one they're worshiping. The one seated on the throne. Worshiping the king of kings. That's what's going on in chapter 4. You will be seated in the throne room of God, in the presence of his glory, and all those that are in it, representing all creation, are worshiping the king of kings. Why does he take a whole chapter and make such flowery language to, to get there? Why couldn't he have just said, I saw the throne room, and everybody was worshiping the king of kings, and move on? The answer is, he wants us to sit here a minute, and he wants us to take in what we're seeing and stand for a minute in this beautiful description of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords being worshipped. John's not like us modern day Americans who just get to the facts, please. Just the headline. I want a bulleted list so I can scroll past it on my social media feed. That's not what John's doing. And it's not what we should do either. And then we get to chapter 5 and the important thing. Then I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll. And let me tell you that whenever you see the word scroll in the whole Bible, you should think book. Actually, when you see the word book in the Bible, you should think the word scroll. <laughs> this kind of format of print did not exist at the time. All they had was very unwieldy, <laughs> hard to, like, like, can you imagine? You're putting this in your backpack. Like, that's so easy. Instead of, like, my scrolls, <laughs> like, carry my Bible around to campus with me. <laughs> that would be difficult. So the Romans invented this thing called a codex, which is like this format. This is a codex. Uh, but we later translated codex back into the word book. Um, by the way, when we're seeing the word book or scroll in Revelation, we're seeing the word biblios, which is where we get our word Bible. That's not really important. But all I'm saying is that we are seeing God at his right hand. He has scrolls. And anytime you hear the word book being opened, you're hearing scroll being opened. What's going on with this book? Where have we seen this book before? Have we seen this book before? The answer is yes. We've seen this book before. We've seen a sealed book referred to several other times in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. We see a sealed book referred to in Isaiah 29, 11, uh, writing on both sides. We see it referred to in Ezekiel, again, Ezekiel 2, 9 through 10, a similar book, though that book is not sealed. The rest of the description is pretty similar. It's a book about judgment, by the way, which is why we sort of equate. The clearest reference, though, given in all the rest of the, all the, rest of the imagery is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. That book in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, was a book about judgment, and it was sealed up until the time of the end. The messenger told Daniel, seal this up until the time of the end. And what do we see in Revelation? We see the unsealing of that book from Daniel, which John starts to describe as happening in his day. The unsealing starts. That's one theory, by the way. One theory that would, that would say that the unfolding of time starts in John's time. Soon after he writes this, it starts to unseal. And his day is continually being unsealed. Or, or rather, after it's unsealed, the contents start happening in John's day. 
Another would say that John is describing a still far future for him. And some people would say near future for us, series of events that start at some point in the very near future. Either way, the main point is going to remain the same. The time of the end, I'm going to say, I think, this, I think the New Testament doesn't make sense unless we say the time of the end that Daniel was talking about starts in the New Testament. The New Testament authors said, we're here at the end. We're here at the end after Jesus rose and ascended. The end has been lasting for 2,000 years. The end times which we are in, which have lasted for 2,000 years, will come to an end at some point. And so those people that, that I refer to, who I, who I love and esteem very highly, who think that Revelation is talking about still future stuff, say that Revelation is referring to the end of the end times. Okay? And that's possible. That, that is a possibility. But what's important here? What's important here is that this book, which is referred to in Daniel chapter 12, is taken up by one who is worthy. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look, a lion and I turned and saw a lamb. That's an interesting phrase. The lion of Judah, the root of David. Where is he standing in this passage? He is standing in the midst of the throne. That is an interesting phrase. So we've got the throne. We've got the one seated on it. We've got the seven torches around the throne. And we have the lamb in the midst of the throne. And so if you imagine what he's describing, you've got a circle of 24 thrones. You've got a square of these four weird living creatures. You've got a throne in the middle. And in the middle of that, you have the lamb sitting in the one who's on the throne's lap, I guess. Or they're talking about the same person. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Jesus is God. He's talking about the Trinity. Just like with the torches. Jesus in the middle of everything. And there's a really cool thing going on here with the confusing seven horns. What's going on here? What's going on with the seven horns and the seven eyes? We ask ourselves again, have we seen this before somewhere? Sort of. I'm, gonna, I'm going to, this is, this is a little bit of a limb I'm going out on. I think I'm safe. And the rest of the brothers are with me. The rest of the elders are with me on this. We've seen the number seven before. We talked about it two weeks ago. The number of seven shows up all over all over in Revelation. It's like he's trying to tell us something. Seven, 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 seven. Seven taken from the seven days of creation. Seven means complete. Seven means full. Completeness, fullness. So he has seven horns. What's that about? Horns are used throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament. As a symbol of strength, a symbol of power, especially a symbol of the ability to conquer. That's what horns are about. And you think when he says horns, think ram's horns, like the, the circular ram's horns. So this lamb has seven horns. I don't even know like, how that would like, work. <laughs> That's kind of an awkward sort of look. It's kind of like a Pokemon, probably, um, <laughs> these descriptions. Uh, seven horns, fullness of power, strength, and ability to conquer. Seven eyes also show up in Zechariah 4.10. They are the seven eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth which range throughout the earth, and it's also in 1 Kings. They range throughout the earth in order to do what? To strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. But we see these seven eyes. They symbolize the perfect or the fullness, omniscience, the perfect sight, the perfect ability to see. And what did Jesus just get done telling the seven churches from our sermon last week? I see you. I see you. I see you. 
But then John goes a step further and he explicitly defines the seven horns and the seven eyes as the seven spirits of God. There's the seven spirits again, the Holy Spirit again. So we see the Holy Spirit identified with the Son and the one seated on the throne. We see through the Lamb, the seven spirits, the one seated on the throne. John talks about the Trinity quite a lot. I'm going to back up a second, verse 5. This Lamb, he is worthy. This Lamb is worthy. Why is the Lamb worthy to take the scroll? Because he has conquered. It's interesting. You wouldn't expect an animal that's described as slaughtered to be described as conquering. This lamb was slaughtered. Did he win? It should cause our brains to go, well, I mean, we know that Jesus won. That's what the Bible teaches us, right? But he was slaughtered. Slaughtered lamb. But then he says, he has conquered. And so is worthy. Because what is that lamb doing? That lamb is not lying down as though dead, slaughtered as though dead. That lamb is standing on the throne, ruling. He conquered. Death did not stop him. That is an important message for us in the church. Because Jesus, we know, sets a pattern. We'll find out in chapter 14 that the ones who, who conquer, the ones who conquer through this tribulation, the ones who conquer through this tribulation, who's the one you want to be, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Where did the lamb go? The lamb went to the cross and died an unjust, torturous death. The lamb went to the grave and was buried. And then the lamb went to the sky to be with the father, conquering. And now he's seated on a throne. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. And our life will follow that same pattern if we follow the lamb. Taking the scroll from the right hand is a moment that should cause a crescendo in our thinking. He went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Everyone was upset that nobody was worthy, but what did this lamb do? This lamb walked right up to the throne and he took it and everybody went bananas <laughs> when he took the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders they fell down before the lamb everyone had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of the saints and they started singing a new song this right hand thing though if you read your bible with consistency this right hand of god if you know your apostles creed this right hand of God should ring some bells, lots and lots of bells. Acts 2, verses 31 through 33. Peter is preaching to the crowds, seeing what to come, what was to come. The prophets spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay, but rather God, was ra God raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. That was the day of Pentecost, when the apostles started preaching, the Holy Spirit came down, and the church started Jesus, he says, one of the first things he says is that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And that theme of the right hand of God, the New Testament authors go on and on and on about. Ephesians 1, verse 20, he, uh, God 
exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected, God did everything under Christ's feet and appointed Christ as head over everything for the church. What is this right hand starting to symbolize? Power and authority and dominion. What is God doing? He is putting Jesus at his right hand, meaning this one rules over everything. Hebrews goes back and re-talks about it in chapter 1, verse 3. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, that throne room scene that we were talking about, and the exact expression of his nature or his character, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, so he became superior to the angels. Just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who does Jesus have authority over? Everyone and everything in all creation. That's what this right hand taking the scroll is about. And this scene also shows up in Daniel chapter 7. One of the things that was sealed for the end of time. Chapter 7 verse 13. Daniel says, I continued watching in the night. Visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the ancient of days, the one seated on the throne, and he was escorted before him, and he was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion, how long does it last? It's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Persecuted church in the first century who's on the verge of extinction at a cruel Roman empire who hates you. Who is your king? He is seated on the throne. He is at the right hand of God, and he is king over all those kings. And those weird living creatures that kind of would freak you out if you saw them, they bow to him. That's the message. Because what happens next? After he takes the throne, he takes the scroll, worship happens. Worship is the response. There is a very, very clear message in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. One, we are seeing the glory of God. And what is the response of all creation when the glory of God shows up? Worship. And we see the authority given to Jesus the lamb, the father, says you are worthy because you conquered to take this authority. And what's the response to the worthiness and authority of Jesus? It's worship. What's this part of Revelation telling us? This part of Revelation is saying, and what we should do about it is, that if we peel back the curtain that divides the physical and the spiritual, and we're able to see into the spiritual realm, into the heavenly throne room, what would we see? We would see a worship service. The Lamb is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power because he has conquered. How has he conquered? By being the faithful servant of the Father, even to the death, even death on a cross, he is worthy and he is conquered because that grave could not hold him and God by his power raised him because he was obedient to his right hand. 
And we are to follow in his footsteps. Because of Jesus' obedience and Jesus' worthiness, we are allowed to follow along in his footsteps and be counted worthy, be considered clean, be able to be identified with that lamb who is worthy. We're not worthy, are we? How's your obedience? Is it perfect? How you doing? When God asks you to do something in your life, how you doing? When you read about the tribulation coming, are you scared that you might not make it? When you think about the sword and the spear or the rifle or the whatever it is at that point, being held to your head and say, receive this mark or die, are you afraid of what you will do on that day? You don't have to be if you follow the Lamb. You don't have to be afraid if you follow the Lamb because it's not your perfect obedience that makes you worthy of standing in the throne room of Christ. It's not your perfect courage in the face of terror that makes you worthy of being in the presence of Christ. It is Christ's perfect obedience in the face of terror. Stop preaching the things you are preaching or we're gonna hang you on that cross. His perfect obedience, his perfect courage. We get to bank on that. My savior was perfect. I'm following him wherever he goes. That's what we're looking at here. I have some application points. First, keep your eye on the lamb. Keep your eye on the lamb. Hebrews tells us this. The New Testament tells us this. Be like Christ. Imitate Christ. Be conformed into the likeness of Christ. Keep your eye on the lamb, especially when we're reading Revelation. Christ is the center is one of the slides I had up earlier. That is like the central key to unlocking the whole Bible, including Revelation. Don't get distracted by looking for meaning and details where there isn't an explicit definition given or an explicit link to the Old Testament or a universally agreed upon understanding of the phrase. And even when you do have an explicit link to the Old Testament, kind of like we do with the living creatures, you notice like they didn't define in the Old Testament what the bull head was about, what the eagle face was about. They didn't define those things. What they did say is you're seeing the glory of the Lord. That's the definition we need. We don't need to go into the other details about all the symbology. Sometimes we're not told a specific definition of an individual detail, but the link is clear. And that link is the important part where that's the key to Revelation. Jesus is the main character. Keep your eyes on the lamb in your everyday life. Where do we see Jesus going in his earthly life? And how ought that impact where we go in our everyday life? Keep your eye on the lamb in your everyday life because he is absolutely in control. That's what we're seeing with this scroll imagery. He is absolutely in control of the events of history. He's the only one worthy to unpeel that that seal, unpeel that seal, unpeel that seal, unfold the events of history. He's the only one worthy to do that. He is absolutely in control. If he didn't peel that seal back, those things would not have happened. Those things will not happen. If he doesn't peel that seal back, he's got a purpose. We'll be getting into that end of the series. He's got a reason that these things are happening. He's absolutely in control of the events of history, even the bad events. And he is directing them for what? For his glory. And our response is worship. He goes to the cross, then to the grave, then to the right hand of his father. And still to come, he is coming back here on earth to reign forever. And we will get to be with him forever. Amen? And in the meantime, in the meantime, 
We are to follow the lamb wherever he goes. We keep our eye on him and we follow him. That's Revelation 14, 4. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Point number two, we are to respond to the lamb. Keep your eye on him and respond to them in worship. So in your daily life, with the four living creatures, with the 24 elders, and with the countless thousands plus thousands of thousands, it says here, I left that part out, sorry. That's the best part. It's coming. We worship Christ daily as we follow him wherever he goes. As we decide to honor and glorify him with the way we live, the decisions we make, the way we work, the way we study, the way we treat our parents, the way we treat our friends, the way we treat our coworkers, the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially, and maybe most especially by the way we even treat our enemies and speak about our enemies. We follow the Lamb. We give worship and glory and honor to Christ by the way we do those things. Keep your eye on him. Respond to him in your everyday life as you go about every decision, every action, every conversation, every thought process. Respond to the worthy lamb and respond to him together with the church. We also gather with our brothers and sisters to worship, not just through music, but through hearing preaching, through praying, through reading the word together and through singing. And as we read this passage, so what we're going to do next is we're going to read through this passage with a more clear understanding of what's going on. We are going to respond to Jesus, the worthy one, by singing together. So the band, would you come join me on stage as we get ready to hear Revelation 4 and 5 read aloud because chapter 1, verse 3 says, blessed are the ones who hear who hear the words of this book. As we get ready to hear Revelation 4 and 5 read aloud, I want to say this morning, if you don't know this Jesus we're reading about and singing to, and you would like to know this Jesus, I will be up here in front of the stage this morning. I would be happy to talk to you. I'm not the only one that you can talk to, by the way. If you came with somebody, they would be more than happy to talk with you about their Jesus and why he's worthy, and what is all this about being slaughtered and rising from the dead. As someone brought you here this morning, I'm sure they'd be happy to talk to you, but I will also be up here after the service, and I'm sure a number of the other pastors who are here this morning with us would be happy to talk and help, to see if we can just help, answer any questions, help you know, what am I supposed to do about this? So I'll be up here after the service if that is something that would be helpful to you as well. So brothers and sisters, would you stand with me? Now, and listen and hear with your books. And we're going to read together. Well, I'm going to read. You listen. (laughs) This would go on forever if we did it together. We're going to hear the words of Revelation 4 and 5. We don't usually do the the band behind the speaker thing. We're going to do that now because I think we're, we're watching a worship service in heaven. But read with me. Read quietly with me as I and hear as, as I read. That after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. 
The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around and inside, day and night. They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And then I saw in the hand, the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. But then one of the elders said to me, don't weep, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands and then some, plus thousands of thousands. They sang with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Fell down. 